Hey everybody and welcome back to Practice Makes Faithful. Today we are in Season 3, Episode 2, and we have a great episode ahead of us. So I'm excited to dive into this. My name is Ben Patterson, joined as always by Paul Hugobart. Yeah, good to be here with you this morning, Ben. Um, yes, sir. Looking forward to diving into this. This will yeah. be, uh, I, think, I think it's going to be some really good conversation today. I think so. I agree. Before we dive in, how's the week, Ben? Yeah, uh, it's been good. Um, you know, I think definitely my, my time, and we, we ended last week talking about the, the 21 days of prayer, fasting yes, and prayer that we're yes. inviting people into. And so, um, really, I'd say my week was flavored by, uh, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, or maybe the tone for my week in many ways was set by these devotional thoughts pulled out of this prayer guide. And it's interesting to me, I was commenting to my wife, um, you know, it's interesting having been the one that wrote those devotional thoughts. You go through and you write them, you're putting together these thoughts with other people in mind, and then I come back to it and I, I jump in on the journey as well. And, um, you know, maybe not the words that I wrote, but definitely the words of Scripture pop out again to me and come alive yeah. again to me. You know, having gone through and written uh, the devotional guides, but then coming back and uh, participating as well, uh, just th- th- there's a lot of deep meaning in what we're doing in the journey mm-hmm, we're walking mm-hmm. through right now. And so uh, it's been good for me, a kind of a, a, a spiritual, like a breath, a fresh breath of spiritual life. And so I hope that other people are experiencing that as well as they're spending time fasting, praying, and then allowing each one of those little nuggets maybe to shape their thoughts for, uh, for the day forward. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it's been, it's been a good week in that regard. Um, mm, that's awesome. So, and that's, that's what we hope for others, you know, so to get to experience that myself, um, it's, it's a blessing. Yeah. That's great. That's great. I know that that's been uh, that's been meaningful for me as well. I've been enjoying this. Been I tried a couple of different things I hadn't done before, fasting wise, yeah, yeah. this year, and uh, it's been a really meaningful experience. Yeah, there is something, and, and we've said it before. You know, there is something in that experience that you know many of us who have not spent time uh, fasting. Certainly, you know, you're following Jesus. You're probably familiar with prayer. We, we you know, most of us pray. In fact, I think it's a very high percentage of uh, you know, the, the North American population, when surveyed, says they pray. Even I think it's a higher number than people who actually claim to have faith, which is interesting. Um, but to move to this level where we're adding the practice, the very intentional practice of fasting yeah, yeah. to it as well, um, there is this level of focus and purpose and intent that comes to mm-hmm. that. And so, you know, again, um, you know, we'll, we'll invite people into this practice again at the end of uh, the podcast. It's not too late to jump in and um, you know, yeah. dedicate some time this month to prayer and fasting. But just to speak from my own personal experience, it sounds like yours as well, uh, some real rich, uh, you know, a very rich experience mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. In, walk, in, in our walk with God as we walk through this time of prayer and fasting. Yeah, that's been so. good. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. I mean, this is a time that's been kind of complimenting this series yeah. that we're in right now called Clay. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is shaping you? What's shaping you? Yeah. And set it really just set it around that question. Are we being shaped by Jesus? Uh, are we yeah. being shaped into disciples of his? Or are we being shaped by the world, by culture? And that's today right. we're going to continue diving into some of these cultural forces that may be shaping us. Yeah. But before we do that, Paul, for anyone who just wasn't here last week, would you give us a quick recap of kind of where we got started, where this kind of idea clay yeah. came from, and then uh, we'll move into this week's message. 
Yeah, so there, there are a number of passages in Scripture that bring out this imagery, this metaphor that we are clay being shaped and God is the potter. Now, there's the acknowledgement there, kind of if you read in between the lines, that there are many things that could shape us. And we've been making that acknowledgement as we uh, share this in the series here at Grace Chapel, also obviously in this podcast too, that we are constantly, and in fact, I think I've said it this way, that life is a constant process of being shaped by things like the relationships that we have. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a Christ follower and you're in Scripture, by you know being shaped by God's Word and by the design and purpose that He's placed within us. But there are plenty of things that can shape us. I mean, there's the media content that we take in. And it's interesting. I think we talked about this last year. Um, you know, Barna had done some research and revealed that um, you know, even Christians, young Christians, were being shaped at a 20 to 1 ratio um, you know, where, where 20 is the number that you would tie to the hours of uh, content they were consuming that had, you know, uh, maybe a very secular influence on them or just, you know, pop culture type mm-hmm. influence. Mm-hmm. And then the one was, you know, uh, an hour of content they consumed that actually shaped them mm-hmm. so that they would be more influenced by, yeah. by God at work in their lives. And so, um, yeah, so w- when you think about it that way, uh, if we're being formed at a 20 to 1 ratio and, and the culture is what's receiving uh, you know, this, this kind of 20-fold influence um, or is having this 20-fold influence upon our lives, we shouldn't be surprised when sometimes our lives don't really reflect the things of God or when we start to adopt worldviews that actually are not at all mm-hmm. Christian, we're more influenced by these other things that we're allowing to kind of uh, shape us, uh, mold us, that are pouring themselves into mm-hmm. us constantly. and so. That's kind of what we're talking about in this series. Is, you know, we're asking the question, what is shaping you? Because as we talked about in uh, you know, the, this message this Sunday, um, we have to be honest is that we don't know often when something is shaping us. Yeah. We don't always yeah. know what is shaping us. And so um, to be unaware, mm. which is often I think our reality, when we're not aware of what's happening around us, but yeah. it's still leaving an imprint upon us, well, that's, that's dangerous. And it should take us to that place where we want to say, hold on, I, I don't want to be oblivious to the things going on mm-hmm. around me. Mm-hmm. So we're asking that question, trying to, trying to have folks both here who are listening to, to the podcast and folks that are here on Sunday mornings with us, we're trying to move and provoke people to asking the question, what is shaping me? Yeah. What is it that is shaping me? So, I mean, I think that's... That's so right that so often we're unaware of these subtle influences that mm-hmm. slowly shape us. And we kind of, there's like a moment where you may wake up and you wonder, how did I get yeah. here? How yes. did I get to this point? And it wasn't some big shift that happened. It was a little bit that was shaping you just a bit every day yes. over time. And eventually you get to a spot and wonder, how did I get here? That's right. And uh, that's right. we don't want you to be in that spot. Yes. So <laughs> yes. So adding more purpose and yeah. more intent yeah. to to you know who we become. Yeah. You know, is as part of the challenge of this series, I think. So so yeah, I think that yeah. probably kind of gives just a, a quick snapshot of what uh, of what we're looking at, what we're talking about this yeah. month and why it really matters. That's good. So tell us about this week. This week's message, where'd you get with this? Yeah, so um, probably the most famous message that Jesus ever preached, you know, and it's a collection of a lot of different things that, where he was kind of giving, you know, some have called it Jesus' manifesto for life, you know, for the life of his followers. You know, a Jesus, um, Jesus' directive 
to those who would follow him. You know, it's found in Matthew chapter five through seven. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know if they called it that, you know, very early on or not. I think that's something, you know, label that we put on it, you know, as we kind of expected, Jesus stepped up onto this mountain that, that acted as sort of like an amphitheater, you know, mm-hmm. otherwise mm-hmm. how could he, you know, speak so that so many could hear him, you know, a crowd maybe in the thousands listening. And he starts to share his vision for the lives of his followers. Mm-hmm. You know, beginning with talking about blessings and, and you know, you're blessed if, you know, if you're persecuted for, for my sake, you know, you're blessed if you're poor in spirit. You're, I mean, all these things that we would not necessarily equate as blessings. You know, he also teaches his followers how to pray. And, you know, in that we see, you know, the Lord's prayer. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, and so teaches them also not how not to pray. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he goes through this section as well where he has, you know, and this is in, uh, at the end of chapter 5. Um, he's got this section where he says to them, you've heard it said, but I want to tell you this is how it really ought to be. Mm-hmm. And I think what Jesus is actually doing in that section is acknowledging the influence of culture. So you've heard somebody say this. You know, some leader somewhere said, you know, uh, don't commit adultery. Okay, good, excellent. But I'm going to take this further, and I'm going to tell you that if you look at mm-hmm. a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery within her, within your heart. You know, okay, some leader somewhere, you know, in Moses, um, you know, so Moses would have said, don't murder. But I tell you, if, if you hate your brother, man, that's, that's like killing them in your heart. And so Jesus is saying, look, here, is, here are things that we've valued, and, and wisely so. You know, now the eye for an eye, one tooth for a tooth, you know, that's, that's probably a little more, you know, I mean, that, that, there is scripture to that. It's also Hammurabi's code in, in a sense. But, you know, Jesus says, look, I, I want to tell you, I'd rather, instead of you thinking about looking for revenge, think about how you can give to somebody else, yeah. you know? And so over and over, Jesus is taking these, you've heard it was said sayings, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and giving his disciples, his followers, an, an entirely new way of living, mm-hmm. saying this, this is a very countercultural way. If you're going to be like me, you know, if you're going to follow me as, as your rabbi in that day, and, and the goal of the disciples you know, when they followed a rabbi, it was to become just like that rabbi. And so Jesus is saying, in a sense, he's saying, this is the kind of person I am. This is who I was sent here to be. So if you're going to follow me, you're going to look like this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he gives this kind of, this dictate, this direction. Um, you know, he does it over the course of what in our Bibles is three chapters. Again, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he gets to the end of chapter 7. And he, like his kind of conclusion to this message is, okay, listen. You, you've all heard the things I've said. You've been listening the whole time. Okay, so I'm talking, I'm, as a speaker, I'm paying attention to your eyes. I know you've been engaged with me. So let me tell you, it's, it's about a whole lot more than listening. I, I want you to put into practice the things that I've said. And so he concludes by saying this, you know, so everybody who's heard these words of mine and then goes and puts them into practice, well, that person is like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. You know, on a, on a solid, firm foundation. So the rains came, the floods rose, the winds blew, and the house stood firm. I, you know, I love kind of what Jesus is talking about there in the sense saying, look, what I, the picture of life that I'm painting for you is a life built upon the solid foundation of God. I mean, yeah. this is a life that resounds with the heart of God. It connects directly to the heart of God. And so if you do that, the storms are still going to come. 
The winds are going to blow, the floodwaters are still going to rise, but if you build your life on this foundation, you can stand, uh, you can stand the storms of life. <laughs> you know, but if you hear these words and you turn around and you say, well, that, those were neat words, and then you don't put them into practice, that makes you like a foolish person yeah. who goes out and builds his house upon sand. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm giving you a vision for life. There are loads of other places that are giving you a vision for how to live life worldviews in a sense you know the worldviews that are being framed stories that are being told about what life what is at the heart of life if you want to live life and get the most out of life here's how you're going to turn around and live mm -hmm. so there are loads of places that are giving directive a vision for what life could be like and it's the difference between solid ground living living out kind of the vision for life that i have cast for you and sand mm -hmm. And we're all looking to build something. So what type of foundation do you want to build upon? And so, you know, I think I, I love what Jesus is doing because he is, he is kind of, I think, painting for us this picture of contrasting worldviews. This reality that there are, you know, different people have, have a different belief or different expectation um, at the heart of what life ought to be about. And so when you start to believe life is about this, it's going to impact the way you live. It's going to, um, it's going to maybe shape the person you become. Mm -hmm. So the beliefs that you hold core and central in life shape the person that you become. Now that should come as no surprise to us, uh, but Jesus was very plain about that. Mm -hmm. And so he's, he's saying, look, you can, you can allow your life to be shaped by multiple different things. Is it gonna be me? Is it going to be God your creator? Or is it going to be a lot of things that are distractions to that and then yeah. competing yeah. messages and worldviews? And so I think that's, that's kind of the, the, the heart of what um, this, this message was about is, again, raising this awareness, as Jesus was doing for mm -hmm. those who were listening mm -hmm. to them. Look, there are loads of things seeking to shape you. Yeah. Will your life be shaped by my words and by my life as well? Or is it going to be shaped by something else? That's good. So you, in the message, you then went on you, to talk about eight different worldviews mm -hmm. that have a formative shaping effect on our culture and that are potentially shaping us as well. Mm -hmm. Even if we don't know it, even if we're not aware of it, these yeah. are forces that are at work in our world that are having a formative impact on us. Yeah, very much so. Um, so I'd love to go through each of these ideologies to talk about them and to talk about uh, why like, why this is important to be aware of these things of yeah. what kind of impact they may be having on us. Yes. So I think you got these from a book. Yeah, right? yeah, I can kind of show this book and we'll link it in the show notes as well. So if you're watching, you'll see this book is called Hidden Worldviews, Eight Cultural Stories That Shape Our Lives, uh, written by two guys, Steve Wilkins and Mark Sanford. Uh, this book was written in 2009. So it's, you know, now okay. a 14-year-old book. Um, but the things that they point out as these competing worldviews, or they actually call them lived worldviews. What they're saying, these are practical worldviews based upon what we observe, what we observe people living for, mm -hmm. what they've set as the target and goal in their lives based on the fruit that we see in a sense. Gotcha. Um, yeah. you know, so uh, some people would argue that, um, you know, that, and there are a lot of theoretical worldviews that kind of arise out of, out of the academic world saying, and they, they discuss that to some degree in this book as well, that arise out of the academic world 
that, that would maybe say, here's what the meaning of life should be and here's how we would live toward it. What mm -hmm. they're trying to do is to not begin with academics, they're trying to begin with observation mm -hmm. and saying, when we observe people living, what, do we, what can we conclude their, belief, their beliefs must be by what they're chasing after? You know, so how can we determine what someone believes the meaning of life must be by what we observe as we examine their lives? So, so yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of what, uh, what the, the goal of this is and, uh, or what the goal of their writing is. And they call it hidden worldviews mm -hmm. because of the acknowledgement that these are often things that, lies just, that lie just beneath the surface that most people are not aware of. They don't realize how much they're being shaped. Mm by some sort of belief that they have, and then beyond that, how faulty that belief truly is when you actually start to pick it apart. And that's true about a lot of the things that we believe that we haven't really taken time to examine. You know, we as human beings are, are very capable of, of rationalizing, um, justifying our actions with some very faulty thought processes mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. somehow um, pursuing some of these things that we'll talk about, you know, pursuing the end uh, that is wrapped up in a particular worldview makes us feel good somewhere, somehow. But when you start to, in a sense, I mean, I'll use the word deconstruct, even though I know that's a, you know, somewhat kind of buzz, buzzword right now. But, uh, but really, that's what Jesus, Jesus spends time, you know, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, deconstructing the worldviews of those in his audience so that he can give them a better way of living. Yeah. And in a sense, that's what we're going to do. You know, we talk about deconstruction a lot in, um, in relation to what a lot of people are doing with their Christian faith. But the reality is, you know, or the worldview that their Christian faith has created, and sometimes a very faulty worldview mm -hmm. as well, um, because the worldview was not rooted in Scripture. It was rooted in maybe institutional church life. Yeah. And so sometimes, I, you know, I, I, that's not all bad, deconstructing some of the faulty thoughts that our institutional church life has, has impressed mm -hmm, upon us. Mm -hmm. But it's also very valid to go through and deconstruct some of these worldviews that many of us have not put much thought mm -hmm, into mm -hmm. as well. So deconstruction, uh, you know, is, is, is a knife that can cut at many different levels and at many different places. And so, uh, so I think that's what we're going to do a little bit of in the next few minutes is kind of deconstruct some worldviews oh. that, uh, that have some, some real flaws in them. Yeah, and these are interesting because these, I mean, just I remember just yesterday as you were unpacking this list, they were really striking to me things that I may have not thought about or put on this list, things that I didn't realize had influenced mm. me as much as it probably has. And they're just, they're kind of these silent forces that we yes. may or may not be aware of, but that are placing a, having a really large impact on a lot of us. That's right. So, um, yeah, especially when we ask the question, what, what is really shaping us? Yeah. And we yeah. had to move pretty quick in the yes. message yesterday yep. through these and well, it's not to move at a decent pace yeah, today, but we can spend right. a little bit more time on it. So yes, let's dive in to the first of these worldviews, which is individualism. So Yes. What, tell us first, what is individualism? Yeah, so what, what Wilkins and Sanford say about individualism is that, that it's basically this belief that I, I exist at the center of the universe. You know, that um, in a sense, you know, nothing matters more than number one, me. I've got to look out for myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this, this very individualistic mindset is something that, that is, you know, very much 
um, it, it has arisen out of our, our culture, our Western culture, Western thinking, and then also is something that is very much, I think, uh, fostered within even early school environments. You know, when we think, you know, we're, we're told, you know, you can do anything you set your mind to. <laughs> you know, you, it's very you-centered, you can. So if you work hard, you can do anything you set your mind to. And, and what happens then is when we set these goals for our lives, um, especially if we embrace this individualistic mindset, that means that we're gonna do anything to get to that goal. Um, and then other people can become obstacles to our goals. And other, I mean, if you, if you pursue this rationale to its end, uh, there are a lot of really unfortunate things that can happen along the way. Um, you know, so again, individualism is the belief that, that I exist at the center of the universe, that nothing matters more than what I want for my own life. Uh, nothing matters more than what I can become. Um, nothing matters more than getting the things that I, I find valuable. Go ahead. Are we saying that individualism is inherently bad? Um, you know, uh, here, here's the reality. I think with each of these worldviews, there are some truths that you could find, and, and certainly Wilkins and Sanford acknowledge this in this book, Hidden mm -hmm. Worldviews, mm -hmm. that, you know, for example, um, you know, individualism that moves us to personal responsibility is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so when you look and reflect upon your life and say, how did I, especially when it comes to owning mistakes, uh, how did I contribute to the problem that just you know, just happened, you know, the problem mm -hmm. that just occurred or whatever negative situation happened, you know, that's good. We ought to reflect upon those things and, and find personal ownership. Uh, but when you also look at yourself and say, I'm responsible for every good thing that happens in my life because I am maybe charting the course of my own destiny, um, you know, that can be really bad. It, it denies the, uh, the communal aspect of life as well. It can make us very lone, it can make loners out of us and loners become lonely, you yeah. know, and so, there are a lot of really negative things that have uh, have come about because of this very individualistic pursuit or this pursuit of individualism and the beliefs that come with it. You know, again, the, the idea primarily that I am the center of the universe, um, and so we elevate our own self-importance. You know, we may become self-righteous. So all these negative words and all these negative concepts that we can think of that become with self. So self-centered, self-righteous, self-seeking. You know, all of these things that are, at, at, you know, they come about because of individualism. And so you can see uh, the negatives that, that are wrapped up in that. Um, you know, I think, again, the fact that it ignores the communal aspect of, of life and that we need other people, that's one of the biggest downfalls, but then also that it puts us at the center uh, for, for when any time anything good happens, where the reason for that good thing happened because I yeah. worked harder yeah. than other people. I have what I have. Well, some of that can be true. That's again, the personal responsibility. We need to take personal responsibility, but it denies that, that a lot of, you know, even if you were to take a very secular worldview, if you were not to take a faith-centered worldview, it, it denies the fact that there is um, what would, from that perspective, then be a lot of random chance that happens, you know, so if a good mm -hmm. thing happens to you, um, you know, you miss all the connected, all the connections and, and the web that actually created the ability or the possibility for yeah. that good thing to happen, yeah. Yeah. you know, including the fact that, you know, you probably, if good things are happening to you, likelihood is, the likelihood is that your parents and their parents before them set the stage for, for a lot of the good things that are happening in your life. Um, and maybe put the right kind of values in you, but what about yeah, the other people that yeah. don't have that? And so, um, so individualism can create all sort of problems when 
when you start to flesh it out that way. Well, and to, to be clear with this too, like we're and we're not even we're not going to be able to avoid individualism. That's like mm. I mean, I think if you on any of these things, that's like maybe the bedrock of our culture that a yeah. lot of these are able to yeah. grow out of that. Yes. But then the question with that is then what impact is individualism having on you? How is that yes. shaping you? Uh, we're in our culture. We're going to be a part of that. Individualism is mm-hmm. the bedrock of it. But how is that shaping you? And without and thinking of it, it without realizing God. what individualism is, we may not realize that it's shaping us, yes. that it's shaping what we value, the way we think. Whether or not you think I should give to this person who's in need because you yeah. think, well, they made their choices and they clearly messed up in yes. their life, so they're not really worthy of being given this. There's little things like that where it places it puts a really big impact on shaping us. Yes. Yeah, I think I think it we when we embrace an individualistic mindset, we often elevate our own standing and in doing yeah. so we diminish the standing of others. That's and good. that's that's very problematic when we're trying to embrace a biblical worldview that everybody is made in God's image. Yeah, well, yeah. when you level the playing field like that, that we're all made in God's image, and beyond that, we're all broken as well. You know, that really truly levels mm-hmm. the playing mm-hmm. field. And so, uh, but individualism makes it hard to embrace yeah. those very uh, core and central truths that are that That's are good. rooted in a biblical worldview. That's good. So number two. Uh, number two is consumerism. Yeah, consumerism. This idea that that I, you know, according to Sanford and Wilkins, again, the way that they kind of couch this one is, you know, I, I am what I own. Um, man, if that is true, it will create this never-ending pursuit of the next thing. Okay. You yeah. know, so if you are yeah. defined or your value is defined, right? So your value in life is defined by what you have and what you own. Yeah. Um, Man, then the reality is it will never be enough. What you own will never be enough Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. you're going to have to continue to pursue the next better and the next bigger thing. And what that will make you do along the way uh, is basically sell your soul. Now, um, you know, again, the the trouble that this creates too is, again, if if you have more than many others, you're going to believe that you are better than others. Right, so that you you have more value, you have more worth than others. So you start to look at different people, and you say, "Well, they don't have as much as I have, therefore their value is X. Yeah. I have a lot more, and therefore my value is X." Or if you're on the other side of this, um, the things that you will be willing to sacrifice. You know, I um, it, I was very confused in my early time. Now I, I understand because this is the lived worldview of many people. Yeah, I think about you know, my, my early married years, uh, you know, Lori, Lori and I were married, we were living in West Virginia, and we would go serve this project, this housing project, uh, where people had very little in one sense, but then it was wild too that they would also have some things that, that we didn't have, you know, mm-hmm. at times. I mean, my, my first introduction to a flat screen television was in this housing project. You know, so there's a plasma TV, and I'm looking at this thing hanging on the wall, and I'm like, what is that? Where did that come from? I'd never seen one before. Yeah. Um, and you know, with that, as I started to research, I mean, these, you know, they cost like $3,000 at that point in time. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. man, what, what did these folks sacrifice? And this was a family with young kids. What did they sacrifice so they could have that thing? And why did they sacrifice so they could have that thing? Now, I didn't ask that question at that point mm-hmm. in time, but, you know, they, I'm sure they sacrificed to have that particular thing because of the belief that if they could have that thing, it would say something about who they were. Yeah. It would confirm something about their identity. 
But then I look at my life, and man, it's it's true for me too. Yeah. You know, um, I want to wear a certain type of clothes because the type of clothes that I wear define who I am, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, I I don't want to. You know, I don't want to have too much, but I don't have too much, too little either. And so, you know, I want to be somewhere in there. There's this sweet spot, but even in looking for that sweet spot, I'm accepting that that says something about me. Now, when I may accept that other people will think things about me, that's one thing. But when there is intrinsic value that I'm giving to uh, to who I am because of what I have, right? When that actually connects with an inner value. That's where I can start to see. That's where I'm exposed myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I talked uh, Sunday morning about, you know, being a truck guy. And, and, you know, I have to admit, so there was a time where I drove, I drove a Toyota Prius for several years um, because it, it was the right thing to do. I, I needed to drive this Prius. It was, it, was, it was cheap. It allowed us to kind of get ourselves, you know, in a good position financially to be able to make the step forward, you know, kind of pay off a number of things and then be able to make the step forward and have mm -hmm. a truck again. And I can even look at the reality of my life that, man, I was so happy when I drove off the lot with that truck because now I was, I was me again. Mm -hmm. You know, isn't, isn't that interesting yeah. when you think yeah. about that? And, and, and yeah. there's, it's not that there is, it's not wrong to own a truck. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but if my identity is shaped by the fact that I own a truck and if that I feel like less of a person or less of a yeah. valuable person yeah. because I'm driving a Prius for a time, um, it just exposes the shaping that has taken place in my own heart, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we all know that this is true. I mean, if we, if we dedicate ourselves fully to consumerism, we'll keep consuming, we'll keep consuming, we'll keep consuming. Now, what's interesting about this as well, if I could take this and just relate this to the church world also, um, we know that we have created an environment within the church world, many churches have, where We've created consumers of church as well. Mm. And if I like yeah. what's happening at this church and if it keeps me entertained, I'll stay at that church. And if I feel like I'm being fed or, you know, I mean, even kind of what people will say is I didn't, you know, I really got a lot out of today's service or I didn't get anything out of today's service. You know, and what does that reveal when we think that way? Mm -hmm. It reveals that we've become even consumers of our spiritual diet in a sense. Um, and we value... Um, you know, the better experience in a sense. And mm -hmm. sometimes mm -hmm. even the church that we're a part of um, says something about our identity or the church that we're not part of says something about our identity. You know, so even in, even in church, in a sense, we have become consumers because it says something about us, because we have this belief that it says something about us. So I am what I own, consumerism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just like individualism, it, it has had an effect on all of us to shape us to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So the third one is nationalism. And yeah. Interestingly, we actually missed this one on Sunday. We <laughs> had a little, little bit of a yeah. technical glitch and uh, skipped over this one. Yes. So uh, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, you get a bonus one. <laughs> that's that you right. you didn't hear in the morning. but. Talk to us about nationalism. Yeah, nationalism. Um, you know, the way that, uh, you know, and again, I want, I want you to remember that this book was written in 2009. So this was written before all the conversations come up in the last few years about yeah. the ideas of Christian nationalism. Uh, and so these guys were kind of seeing into the future just a little bit in one sense. But nationalism, the way they define it is this, my nation under God. Now, we would look at that and say one nation under God. Isn't that, doesn't that define who we are as Americans? One nation under God. But 
What that does not allow for is the reality that we do live in a very pluralistic society. You know, so, um, you know, my nation under God, well, right now we'd have to ask, if that's what you want, we'd have to ask, well, which God? You know, because we are so diverse uh, when it comes to even our religious leanings. Um, but we also then, you know, have many people who embrace a very secular worldview and, and don't have any religious leanings whatsoever, or at least claim not to, you know. Um, you know, nationalism too, I think, starts to fall apart. You know, we talk about what nationalism is first. Nationalism is the idea uh, that my nation is favored. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I give my nation favored status, which again, this is like individualism. And I think individualism feeds directly into nationalism because we start to believe that we're at the center. It's just another kind of yeah, offshoot yeah. of believing that we're at the center of the yeah. universe. We now just well, take our that. Our nation is at the center. That's exactly right. We just now take yeah. that and we put that onto our nation. Yeah. And so it, it is not surprising that many Western nations very much embrace this idea and that it has been in Western society where we've seen some really negative things come out of that. You know, probably one of the most uh, stark examples of, of nationalism goes back to, um, you know, Nazism of the you know, mid, late 1930s and into the 1940s as well, where, um, you know, Deutschland über alles was the, the saying, which is Germany over all, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Above all. Why? Well, you know, Hitler actually used God to rationalize, uh, to give justification to Germany being overall and the Aryan nation being the, you know, the chosen people in a sense, that they were far superior. Now, that, that idea was actually tied to evolution, evolutionistic thinking, where, you know, Hitler and others supposed that people with blonde hair and blue eyes were at the top of you know the evolutionary chain in a sense you know and so there's a whole hodgepodge of mess that comes together to breed nationalism Um, but we've seen a resurgence of nationalism in this country as well in the last several years and even other things thrown and tied to it Um, but christian faith or faith in god is often uh, paired with nationalism as a justification for my nation is better, my yeah. nation is favored, yeah. my nation's not just favored by me, my nation is actually favored by God, mm-hmm. right? And so, uh, so then that means we ought to make sure that, you know, by any means necessary, if my nation is favored by God, then our nation ought to, uh, through laws and other things, make sure that we're almost um, legislating the things of God whether people choose them or not, whether people choose God or not. And so there's a lot of things negative, negatively that flow out of this. And, and again, especially the idea of favored status. Um, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, you know, it, I mean, the statistics show right now that there are more Christians in India, now not percentage-wise, but there are more Christians in India than there are in the United States right now. So if God were to go where there are more Christians and say, well, that's the favored nation, then it wouldn't be here for that reason as well. And there is revival happening in countries uh, right now on grand scales, the likes of which we haven't seen in our nation for years. And so where is God's favor? Well, God's favor is with the people who seek him, um, Mm -hmm. not with some arbitrarily drawn borders in some sense. Um, and, And maybe arbitrary is uh, maybe too flippant a way of describing that, but we have to be honest about nations. Nations yeah. come and nations go, but the kingdom of God lives forever. And so if we pursue nationalism as our worldview, 
Um, I don't think that leads us toward God. I think it often leads us away from God and giving more, you know, even though we say my nation under God, what often happens is um, my God under my nation. Um, and so, you know, that can yeah. be a very, yeah. a very dangerous thing. I feel like, too, it can breed... Um, can breed a bit of an arrogance oh, yeah. to your nation over others. Mm. And I wonder, how does that affect that Jesus' movement is a global movement? Yes. How does that affect how you see Christians in other nations? How you right. see the need to share the gospel in other environments if it's so nation-centric? And it's not, it's not necessarily to say you can't love your nation, yeah, that you absolutely. can't prefer your nation. Like that, that, that's yes. fine. But I think nationalism goes to a level of a level of arrogance that it is us first above anyone else. And that means at times putting down others yes. in a way that just doesn't seem to align with the gospel. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I used to even embrace the idea of um, American exceptionalism exceptionalism as determined by God to some degree. You know, I think, and, and I did it kind of uh, maybe ignorantly or, or being oblivious to what I was actually thinking and saying, you know, because what you do is you take this very individu individualistic mindset, then you add to that consumerism and you start to look at it and say, look, we are at the center of the universe. We have what we have and what we have defines us. And look at the United States. We're this very wealthy nation. What must that mean? Yeah. In the end, the conclusion is that we're favored by God. Um, yeah. When we can look at many wealthy nations over the course of, you know, was Rome favored by God? Yeah. Well, no, Rome was a place of debauchery often. Mm. We would look at that and we would identify that and say Rome was this pagan nation uh, full of debauchery, full of, you know, uh, terrible uh, sexual practices and everything else that went with the debauchery, the debaucher, debaucherous lifestyle they lived, uh, lots of alcoholism and everything else. And you know, would we think that Rome was favored by God? No, we wouldn't. So yeah. why do we look at the United States and say, well, we're obviously favored by God? Well, it's, I think, because of a faulty system that puts us at the center of the universe mm. and that makes us believe that all blessing comes in the form of materialism. Yeah. Um, and so, therefore, we are, we're defined by what we have. We mm. have it here. So that must mean, yeah. you know, so yeah. that, that's it's very problematic because there are so many things, especially even as we were talking about before, the Sermon on the Mount speaks out directly against that. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, Jesus is talking about People being poor, being blessed, you know, and poor in spirit. But, but I think that goes beyond just, you know, uh, I think that, that can go to a physical reality as well, yeah. this idea yeah. of being poor in spirit. So, yeah, okay. we've got to be careful with that. Yeah. Let's keep moving. Number four, uh, the fourth ideology, it's moral relativism. What is that? <laughs> yeah, so moral relativism is the idea in a, in a sense that there is no absolute truth, so my truth is as valid as your truth. Um, and, and especially this, this, uh, this connects with our lived reality or, or how we live out our beliefs in the sense that um, we, we now start to put ourselves, this is also very, this is tied to individualism in many ways, we put ourselves at the center of the universe. Therefore, I can determine what is right and what is wrong. Uh, we talked about this last year. You know, we, yeah. we define our own truth. We make our own meaning and value and purpose in life um, based upon our whims, our current mm -hmm. feelings. And so there is no moral compass in a sense. There is no north when it comes to moral compass. What you decide is good for you 
is good for you is not necessarily good for me. So my truth is as valid as your truth. And as we talked about, you know, last year in the podcast in January and also in that message series, you know, that breaks down very quickly when you have your truth and I have my truth and they're conflicting truths. And now we're going kind of, mm-hmm. you know, they, we start to bump into each other mm-hmm. by natural consequence of that. Well, whose truth wins out? You know, do we just keep doing our own thing? But wait, we can't do our own thing because we've reached this place of incompatibility. Yeah. Right? And so, um, you know, you can see where this one falls apart. And you can also see why people are drawn to this because, yeah. Yeah. Um, because there are so many different, you know, um, faith systems, maybe you could say, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the world. Um, there, there are so many different definitions of what provides meaning and value in life. And sometimes people set happiness as the target. And, the, you know, when we set one thing as a target, it moves us into this place of moral relativism because we have yeah. to be able to justify why we're shooting what we're shooting, why we're aiming for what we're aiming for, in a sense. I think there's, a, there's an instinct there that, <clears throat> that feels right, too. At least I'll say to my generation yeah. that it feels like I'm not... Uh, Pushing my views not on being someone judgmental. else. I'm, yeah, I'm not being judgmental. I'm letting someone else believe what they want to believe. So this is fine. There is no real truth. So I'm just going to hold my yes. thing. You do your thing. And so there's a there's an instinct that for me I, that feels good. That mm-hmm. feels like I'm not pushing myself on someone else, and yep. that's a value. Um, so I yes. think there's a there is a seductive nature. So there so what is truth and how do we compromise what is really true in this attempt to feel like we're being non-judgmental and yeah. loving to people yes. putting air quotes around loving that but it's not really loving if it's not what's true. Correct. And if we're following Correct. a biblical worldview there is something that is true. So that's not really loving, but it feels yes. like it is Correct. at times. Correct. So we can act, we can flip that. You know, I think the, you know, what what we said about moral moral relativism. There is no absolute truth. So my truth is as valid as yours. If we're being, in a sense, trying to be gracious and humble, we might say, so your truth is as valid as mine. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, so it does seem as though we're being gracious in that we're being non-judgmental. And certainly in our world, what it, the outflow of moral relativism is that the 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 biggest sin has become to judge someone else. Yeah, you know, yeah. There is no sin greater than, than judging someone else, judging someone else's actions. But if there is a moral standard, if there is a moral absolute, and if God is our creator, and if what God has called us to then becomes the standard for truth, yeah. if Jesus is yeah. the standard for truth, uh, then there is a moral absolute. Um, and so then we have to deal with, you know, well, what, what if we know there's a moral absolute? Is it gracious to allow people to continue to mm-hmm. pursue mm-hmm. their own truth when there is the truth, yeah. a truth. Um, you know, when Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, as he defines himself in John 14. And so, um, you know, again, we can see just logically where where the, this worldview that is moral, to, moral relativism breaks down all over the place. Um, and, and people are not happy by just pursuing their own truth and by making their own meaning in life. In fact, we live in a society statistically where uh, you know, since people have been measuring the happiness index, we're scoring as low as we've ever scored. Mm-hmm. And we've been we've been trying this thing called moral, moral relativism for, uh, you know, several decades now. I mean, going back to probably the 60s and the sexual revolution and, you know, yeah. and, and living free and doing whatever yeah. we want. 
Um, and, and there's been a steady decline in the happiness index since about that time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that, that one falls apart on multi multiple levels. Um, you know, I, it, I'm thankful that people are still searching for truth, but we cannot search for truth within ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're at the halfway point. Yeah. Let's go to number five, scientific naturalism. Yeah, scientific naturalism. So I, I, I enjoy the way that, uh, that they frame this in, uh, in the book Hidden Worldviews to say that scientific naturalism is the belief that only matter matters. Okay. Um, you know, the difficulty with that is if we chase that worldview down, or at least where that begins, it is this, it's the idea of, um, you know, that we are here by random chance, in a sense. That we just happened to get lucky. We were the lucky ones that drew, you know, uh, we drew the long straw. And because we drew the long straw, uh, we had the right elements in this kind of primordial pool at some point in time where, you know, there were the right basic building blocks for life that just happened to be gathered together. And maybe they were zapped by some sort of, you know, uh, you know, billions of years old lightning bolt that happened to just start this chain reaction mm -hmm. that led to protein synthesizing and all this coming together these building blocks blocks of life and somehow now we're here as the product of you know of random chance the difficulty with that is trying to have any sort of significant value proposition in life at that point in time yeah so if you're here and i'm here because of random chance Random chance means there's actually no real purpose and value to our existence whatsoever. Mm -hmm. There's no designer, means there's no design, uh, means we just evolved uh, from something that was basically nothing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So in a sense, you know, the spin that I put on this um, when talking about this on Sunday morning was, if only matter matters, and matter is in a sense nothing, it's nothing that, that can think, right? There's no... Um, there's no thought process to matter. You know, matter doesn't have thought processes. We've developed that through only evolution. If, if only matter matters, then nothing matters. And that is the conclusion that many have come to, and that's often you know, termed existential nihilism. Uh, this idea that, that really there is no purpose and meaning in life, so why even be here? And, and I think that is a lot of people that have chased down um, kind of the end game or, or uh, have allowed themselves to, uh, to continue through the logical progression that begins with scientific naturalism have landed at this point of nihilism um, where there's, you know, there's no reason and purpose in life. There's no meaning to you. You don't have any purpose and purpose is where we find value. If you don't have value, then why should you even be here? And you know, we talked about this last, last year uh, in the, the first message series of the year, <clears throat> that, that, that we're at this place where um, many people are ending their lives nowadays, not because they have some sort of mental health issue that moves them to despair or uh, you know, completely to be exasperated with life. It's because people are despairing because they believe there's no meaning and purpose in life, so why live, right? And that's what comes as a result of embracing scientific naturalism and the idea that only matter matters, mm -hmm. you know? So if only matter matters, again, I'll say it, then nothing matters, then that's nothing good. matters. Um, so that's, that's a tough worldview to embrace. Yeah. Uh, the next one, number six, is the new age. 
What is that? <clears throat> yeah, the way they describe this is with this tagline, are we gods, little g, or are we God, apostrophe s, gods, do we belong to God? Mm -hmm. You know, so did God create us or are we, uh, you know, I mean, here's what's interesting. You know, we live in an age where people want to embrace some measure of spirituality. They absolutely do. But, but they look oftentimes at the, the spirituality that comes from the church and they say, well, that, that is very religious and uh, maybe very inst institutional. So our free thinking age, our free spirit yeah. age, wants something different mm -hmm. than that. So that's where the new age arises out of this attempt to still be spiritual, to be a spiritual being, oftentimes connected to very Eastern mysticism. So it's very mm -hmm. mystic mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, as opposed to maybe somewhat ritual centered at times, which you know, I think that would be what the accusation that would be poked at the Christian faith or some ways of practicing the Christian faith anyway that is very ritualistic um, as opposed to embracing more the mystical, the experiential in that. Um, and so I think the New Age, New Age ideas arrive out of the desire to still be spiritual without being tied to religion in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I can understand that. And that's there's actually something that... Uh, that I find compelling in that um, because uh, sometimes religion removes the relationship that we're called mm -hmm. to have with God it, 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 or it put, makes our relationship dependent upon doing all the right things and checking all the right boxes. So I understand this desire to want to have an experience with God. Yeah. Um, the problem with the New Age is uh, the New Age does not have typically uh, any concept of a personal God or even necessarily God that created, um, or the idea of God is very nebulous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, or the idea is that we are all parts of God in one sense. So we are at the heart of things. We are God's small g. And what we need to do is reach this place of enlightenment, and we can ascend to this plane now where we transcend the physical, ascend into the spiritual, um, and in a sense, embrace who we really are. Um, but it gives us a very distorted uh, understanding of the world because also, again, it puts us at the center. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's very much rooted in individualism. Yeah. It's very much rooted in the idea of moral relativism as well. It's, a it's, it's, a, it's an attempt to be spiritual while being a moral relativist, relativist while being an individualist mm -hmm. as well, mm -hmm. without putting yourself under the authority of a God. You can actually become a God yourself, in a sense, and maintain this spiritual connection. Now, there's a whole lot more to the New Age uh, than that that we probably don't have time to discuss, but I think that's, that's my best kind of yeah. in a nutshell explanation of what that's the New good. Age is. And again, the, the question at the heart of that is, who are we really? What is our identity? You know, am I a God little g, or do I belong to a God who created me? Mm. Big G apostrophe mm -hmm. uh, S at the end of that. <clears throat> All right, <clears throat> number seven is postmodern tribalism. Yeah, this is one that we've seen a whole lot here oh, yeah. uh, lately. Um, and without digging completely into what, uh, what postmodernism is, I mean, postmodernism 
is connected to a lot of these ideas that we've already mm -hmm. discussed and fleshed out to some degree, but what you end up... Very much connected to the moral relativism. Yeah, very much that. Also individualism to some degree, although it brings a communal aspect back into individualism. Mm -hmm. um, but now we start to... The outflow of postmodern thinking is that we start to categorize people by groups. Often they're immutable or somewhat immutable characteristics as well. That's the outflow of that. I mean, we've seen this... Um, and we could say that um, we've talked about critical theory before and talked about the fact that critical theory is trying to answer some problems that we need to actually be honest about and address oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. But the prescription of critical theory is not necessarily mm -hmm. a particularly mm -hmm. good one, especially that it surfaces to, it brings to the surface again this idea of tribalism. Yeah. And so based upon your tribe that's connected to maybe an immutable characteristic, you now have to embrace a certain type of worldview, or it's determined that you do embrace a certain mm -hmm, worldview. So mm -hmm. based upon your skin color, you should embrace a type of worldview. Yeah. Based upon your gender, you should embrace a type of worldview. Based upon whether or not you claim any sort of gender at all, now you embrace a type of worldview. And we give values to the tribe and the worldview that people are supposed to embrace. Mm -hmm. Sometimes very positive values to some, and sometimes very negative values to others. Um, and so it's, it's a way of separating people into groups. Um, and, and there is, many times there is this um, underlayer of a, a desire to see a more just world, which, so we could say that's good in there. I mean, if justice is really what people are going after, that can be a good thing. The problem is that idea of justice tied with postmodern tribalism has taken on a whole new nature that is very different oftentimes from, from biblical justice. You know, and, and it also seeks to judge entire groups of people instead of seeking to maybe rightly judge the actions of one. And so the actions of one becomes, you know, characterizes the actions of all. Now, we've, we've thought like this for years, honestly. This has just emerged as a prominent worldview within probably the last four decades or so. But human beings do think this way. I mean, why have there been tribal con you know, conflicts for years? And there continue to be tribal conflicts today. Um, we just, this is just a new way of embracing tribalism. Yeah. And so, you know, I think tribalism at, it, at its heart is not... Why we should push against it is it's not the vision of God for His people whatsoever when what God has envisioned in Revelation 7 is people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue. So acknowledging that we are different, but God is bringing all of us together under His banner, in a sense, where yeah. this just pushes us further into the tribes yeah. and based upon those different, elevates those differences or suppresses some differences or what, I mean, it's, it's a whole hodgepodge, it's a mess again. It's a hot mess all over again. Um, but it is a very prominent worldview that influences the way people think and live. Yeah. And you can so see it played out in politics. Yes. In yeah. the way certain groups are catered to, assumptions are made about certain groups. They're going to vote one way or the other. And like, I mean, it's just so clear to see how that yes. postmodern tribalistic mindset uh, has has influenced our world. Yes. Yeah, the, the word the word that you used on Sunday was was this idea of a monolith, you know. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. basically uh, the idea that we can um, we can pretty much 
determine how somebody's going to think or behave based upon their, uh, you know, their race, their ethnicity sometimes, yeah. their gender sometimes. Yep. So it's, it's, it's a, an embracing of the idea of determinism almost. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like you, you can know something about somebody or you can predict their future and their path based upon these, again, somewhat immutable characteristics, which... Yep. Um, you know, if we if we believe of God, believe in a God who gave us free will, I mean, that just goes against that altogether. Yeah. You know, and so I mean, there's so many places where this falls apart. That's just one. All right, final one. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting one. Uh -huh. Is salvation by therapy? Yes, salvation by therapy, and, and and they didn't have a label on this one, so I created a label. But I, I think this is kind of sums up where they're going with it, and also sums up what I've seen is that. You know, this idea that the right guidance can help me find freedom. And people are looking for freedom in this life, freedom from their past, freedom from wounds that have occurred. But man, we see this, uh, we see this happening all over the place right now um, in that just about everybody on some level, and I, I don't want to make light of situations where abuse has occurred. Um, there is abuse that has occurred. But we want to be defined by the abuse that happened in our lives at, at times, you know. So... I am a uh, you know, trauma survivor. I am a this. So we're, we're allowing ourselves to be defined by these things. Um, and then we're also hoping, hoping that in that therapeutic realm, we'll find some sort of freedom. Um, but man, it's, uh, some of the things that I'm seeing happening right now are, are just so counter to what God would lead us to. You know, if you're defined by something bad that someone did to you, and we're called to be people of forgiveness, but you're defined by that thing, by that trauma experience. It's very hard to bring forgiveness into that. If, if God is the God of healing, yeah. then where does healing really truly come from? You know, does it come from rehashing in therapy? And I, you know, as a therapist, right? Does it come from rehashing that negative experience over and over again? Or does it come from learning to embrace something better in a bigger reality or finding meaning even in your suffering or accepting that this yeah. is part of the brokenness in this world and um, you know but when we think we can find salvation by uh, by therapy just talking about our problems over and over again um, when we think that maybe setting the right goals from here for again it's it it's it goes back to individualism again mm -hmm. um, believing that we can but now we're looking to the guidance of someone else to help us be able to, um, when the reality is that there are some things that we can only be freed from by turning to God and handing those things over to Him that you can't yeah. on your own power. And salvation by therapy still very much says on your own power, with the guidance of someone else mm -hmm. who's mm -hmm. maybe a little wiser, you can. I thought it was a really, really an interesting one I would not thought of before, but it's interesting that as you tease that out, how I have seen and heard that. Uh, I've got a podcast I listen to on a regular basis with a couple of guys who have deconstructed their faith, mm. and I have mm. heard in their story mm -hmm. how it almost feels like there has been a replacement of therapy yes. that has kind of replaced a place where the new religion and was there, where Christianity right. was there. Um, and that's, that's really an interesting one. And there's also a part of me that wants to be a little careful as someone who, you're a counselor, yeah. I've just studied counseling, I believe so highly in that. I went to counseling for several months and found it to be a huge formative thing in my life. But I can see where 
it could like it's it's the salvation part yes. of it to say that this is my salvation to where it can turn mm -hmm. into a new religion of sorts. It does. It does. Right? Yeah. So um, the therapists are the new prophets and priests. Yeah. In a sense, and it's we really take them our problems, and they help yeah. us find freedom and help us find yeah. salvation. In a sense, um, you know, and it's really interesting. And they, uh, you know, Sanford and Wilkins point this out in the book is that. If, if we look at this one, where this one starts to fall apart, apart is that we have to start asking the question, well, then how did people survive 100 years ago? Because it wasn't until roughly 100 years ago that therapy and practices, therapeutic yeah, practices, yeah. start to rise, you know, start to come into, the, uh, into practice or, you know, start to, you know, uh, appear on the scene. And their speculation is... They went to the is, priest. They went to the rabbi. That's right. Went, yeah. That's right. So as we move more into this secular age, we still have this problem yeah. that we're trying to be delivered yeah. from. We've just determined that something new is going to save yeah. us. So it's not going to be through a religious pathway. Yeah. It's now going to be through a therapeutic yep. pathway, yep. which is where, you know, even things like moral therapeutic deism arrive, you know, where, um, where maybe we, we believe there's a God, but we believe that the shaping of our life happens, lives happens more through self-help and other things mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. uh, than as, as opposed to surrendering. So again, the problem at the heart of this is this is an attempt to take control of my life mm -hmm. where what God would have me do is really surrender my life. So good counseling helps people realize maybe they're not in control and will never be able to take control. And so I hope that's the kind of counseling you and I yeah. try to engage yeah. in is to, to show people, look, there are things that are out of your control that you have to trust and surrender to God. And there's where you will find peace and freedom as opposed to, you know, this self-help and the next yeah. five steps that will free me yeah. from different things. And so um, that's where salvation by therapy really falls apart. But it is helpful to see this is, you know, therapists are the prophets and priests of our secular age in, in a way, you yeah. know, yeah. very interesting. So that's the eight worldviews. That's a yeah. lot. That's a lot of information yes. right there. But I'm sure that as you're listening to this, I, you can probably see each of these, how each of these apply. Yeah. Maybe you've felt some are stronger forces in your life than others, but I imagine you can see how each of these are alive and yeah. well in our culture. And uh, maybe you're starting to wonder how they've influenced you yes. and how they've influenced me as I'm going through this. I've been trying to piece that together. So. My question is, you said in the message that we don't always know what's shaping mm -hmm. us. We don't know when these things are shaping us. So how do we know? Like, how do we know if we're being shaped? Like, what, yeah. do, what do we do? How do we know if these things are shaping us? Yeah, let, let me restate even what you just said in, in just a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think if those two things are true, that we don't always know when something is shaping us, and we don't always know what is shaping us, but we know that many things are at work shaping us, then I think we have to accept this next bit, that the assumption that my life is primarily being shaped by God, even if I call myself a Christian, may be false. Ooh. And that's a heavy one. Yeah, you know, is. is God the primary shape, the primary force at work shaping me? or mm. because of my lack of awareness of the, the things that are working to shape me, or because of my sometimes complacency. That's the other piece that we mm. have to be honest about. You know, being shaped by God or allowing oneself to be shaped by God it, it involves intent and purpose. It doesn't you know, just happen. I think sometimes some of these forces, as we've talked about, can even be conflated to think that that is God shaping Right, me. yes. No, I think that's true. Our nation is a 
uh, it's the Christian nationalism idea. It's even individualism. It's yes. all these things that we can even conflate these things and not even see that that's you know, that's a worldview of my culture. Yeah. That's not God. That's not that's not from Jesus. Yes. Again, um, and it's the good things because there is a measure of truth. Yeah. Or or a just about every one of yeah, those. Just about every one of these. Again, value. to to accept personal responsibility. Yeah. Is I think an idea that's biblically rooted. Yeah. To choose to work hard, again, is an idea that I believe is biblically rooted. Yeah. You know, so there are these ideas that are biblically rooted um, that even connect with this idea of individualism. But when you start to think that because I work hard or because I have a lot of things or because I've achieved a certain level of success, I must work harder than everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or I, mu I must be a better person than everyone else. Um, you know, so that's individual. That's kind of like we're, you know, that's at the crossroads of individual individualism and consumerism. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, that that kind of is the natural outflow of embracing those two beliefs. And so, um, again, there is some truth in each one of these, and that truth can become the means by which we justify embracing the whole worldview, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the rest of what comes with it. Yep. Um, so, you know, I think the question was something along the lines of, you know, how, do, how can we know when we are being shaped? Yep. Well, we just need to make the assumption that you are being shaped okay. by, by probably somewhat yeah. each one of these to some degree has had an influence upon you, mm. an impact upon you. And maybe not every one of them. Maybe you would look at them and be able to say, I don't think I'm really influenced by that at all. For me, the new age, there's no appeal in that whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So, but I can still, <clears throat> you know, I can still admit that, um, some of the ideas that move people toward embracing new age thought have an influence upon me. You know, yeah. the idea of moral relativism, I think probably has an influence upon me at yeah. times, you know, um, where, where I do wonder, you know, but, but then I know I return to this, this knowledge and understanding that yes, God has created a moral absolute and we ought to follow. Truth is found in only him, yeah. you know, and so, um, but I think we just ought to start with the, the assumption yeah, uh, you know how can we know? Sense. We all are. Yeah. Bottom line, yeah. life is life is as we said it's a series of experiences. Life is a process of being constantly shaped by whether it be these different worldviews, the relationships we have. Everything is competing to shape you always, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is why we're asking the question: What's shaping you? Because mm -hmm. there are so many things at work constantly shaping us. So just start with the assumption that bottom line, you're being shaped by these things um, if especially if you're not making a conscious choice to try to be always evaluating yourself hmm. we're being shaped so as we bring it to a close <clears throat> what can we practice out of this this week how can we practice what we've learned to be faithful to jesus yeah so you know i'll just say as a therapist you know the, the therapeutic approach i probably embrace most which is one that's being pushed against by a lot of people in therapy especially those who embrace kind of a postmodern worldview is that of cognitive behavioral therapy it's it's helping people understand exposing what's actually going on and then giving tools to be able to maybe make the right steps forward or to think in a different way so we're changing the way people think uh, so we're giving new knowledge, and out of that un new knowledge and understanding, hopefully comes new life practice. Well, mm -hmm. I think that ought to be true here as well. Um, and in, you know, in fact, that I think cognitive behavioral psychology actually connects back with scripture. You know, as we think in our hearts, so are we. You know, so uh, as we refuse to think in our hearts, so are we too. So the places where we're complacent, well, there's there's a natural outcome of of our complacency. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so I would say, how can we practice what we've learned to be faithful to Jesus? Is man, this requires some time of self-reflection. Yeah, yeah. To to try to understand how how much am I shaped by uh, an individualistic worldview, yeah. uh, a consumerist mindset. How much am I shaped by um, you know moral relativism? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. any one of these. Am I being shaped yeah. by this? How much am I? How much do, do I believe that salvation can be found through therapy or salvation found in God mm-hmm, alone? I mean, mm-hmm. how much of these ideas that we've talked about today, uh, am I, how, what kind of an influence do these ideas have upon me? And then the second part of that is, am I putting myself in a place where I am intentionally, purposely being shaped by God? Because that doesn't just happen by accident. Yeah. So um, to... in engage in some of those very formative spiritual practices like daily Bible reading, daily prayer, what we're doing right now, prayer and fasting, uh, listening to the ideas of others' thoughts about God um, based upon their time in, in study. You know, all of these practices that we can engage in that will enrich our lives, yes, but that will shape us so that we become the people that God wants us to become, so that we look more like Jesus in the end. And so, um, maybe if we can accept, you know, again, as was said about, you know, the, the, the millennial generation that, uh, you know, uh, they are being influenced at a rate of 20 to 1, um, you know, when it comes to ideas in the world, media content of the world and, and, you know, content that would be connected with God, we can try to reverse some of that trend and say, I'm going to give up. I'm going to intentionally eliminate some of those places where these other ideas are impressing themselves upon me to return to the one thing, the one person who I really want to be impressed. You know, I want God to impress yeah. him. Yeah. It started with his fingerprint. Mm-hmm. I want mm-hmm. him to continue to leave his mark on my life. I want him to shape me more than anything else. So that's a conscious choice. We have yeah. to make that choice. The question is, are we going to make that choice? Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. That's good. Good question to leave it on. I think good challenge to leave us on for this week to go through, spend some time yeah. reflecting on these, reflecting on how they're shaping you. Um, so I look forward to next week, yeah. diving further into this content. Yes. Part three of this series, we invite you to join us again. If you're local, I invite you to join, you, join us Sunday morning at Grace Chapel. Yeah. Otherwise, tune back in next week's episode of the podcast. And, uh, we look forward to hearing from you all again. Mm-hmm.